Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. And Alex, today we thought we were going to be talking just about the A's and everything, but that special session is still going on. And so instead, we've got a regular episode where we catch up with the legislative team about all the craziness that happened after the session and also, you know, some stuff about the A's now. And then we also chat with Gabby Birenbaum, our reporter in D.C., and also meet a few new members of Team Indy. Yeah, that's always exciting. I know I'm pretty fresh myself, so I'm excited to talk with Amy and Noel. Well, we are joined by our very tired legislative team, Sean Galanka, Tabitha Mueller, Jacob Solis. Welcome to the show. We're talking about all things legislature. We are indeed, Joey. Hello, it's me, Sean. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you, Joey. <laughs> well, I'm going to let Alex lead off with the first question here. Yeah, well, I guess we can kind of already tell you're all a bit tired. I know we already had a special session. How are you all feeling heading into this second special session? Morale is low. And I don't think I'm talking just for the legislative team here. I think it's, you know, people were a little bit frustrated at having to be in the building again so soon after we finished the 120 day session. I think there were a lot of questions about being here. Even the weather was mad, but it was nice to have a break this weekend and kind of come back. And for people who haven't been paying attention to the news, Sean, maybe you want to explain exactly where we are now. We were supposed to end the regular session, but now we are in a second special session. So if no one has read the news in the last two weeks, what's going on? Yes. Well, today I've learned that a three-day weekend is, is not enough to make up for recovering from a 120-day session plus. Basically, what happened is Monday was the final day of the 120-day session. Nevada's legislative sessions happen every other year, and they're constitutionally mandated to end at 120 days. So it had to end at the end of Monday, the 5th. The day after that happened, one of the five major budget bills had not yet been passed. So Nevada held its shortest special session in, in state history, to, basically to, to get that budget bill passed. And then the next day, another special session began with the Oakland A's Las Vegas Stadium on deck for consideration. And ultimately, after a first hearing of the bill, both houses of the legislature adjourned after a little break. Bills kind of back up in the air and were waiting to see what happens. That has been a big topic the A's. But as far as just the general legislative session, how has that been for you guys? What are the takeaways? I'd say generally, I think we expected some degree of compromise because we have a Democratic majority legislature with a supermajority in one house and near supermajority in the other and a Republican governor. And so we saw that the governor wanted a lot of things and didn't get a lot of things. We saw that the Democrats wanted a lot of things and have seen a bunch of bills vetoed if they made it through at all. So I think that there has been even more compromise than maybe we expected. The governor backed way off on, for instance, school choice proposals, and the Democrats have gotten a lot of their bills through. I think that maybe some people might not have expected at the start of the year. I'm thinking in particular of a, a bill protecting out-of-state abortion seekers. Lombardo said he wouldn't get rid of an old executive order from the Sisolak administration. And not only that, he signed a bill putting that into law. So, you know, I think that the Democrats have gotten some wins, but Lombardo got all of his marquee bar one legislation through the legislature. And I think he's going to lean on that as a victory for him, at least because his name is on that stuff. I also think that we need to still pay attention to the fact that bills still need to be signed. And that's going to be something to watch as this special session takes place, because the deal making isn't over, right? We, we know that there are still discussions that are going. There are still bills that 
Lombardo will sign or veto or pocket pass, depending on where his alignment comes. And that could be a point where there's room for negotiations, for potential some deal making around do we pass these bills and Democrats get some more of what they want. Um, And I think it's one of the reasons that we haven't seen too many bill signings or vetoes as Lombardo kind of has a little bit of extra time now that the legislature has signy died. And I'll ask a little bit about that extra time. Sean, we talked about this the last time you guys were on the podcast about the amount of time that the governor has to sign a bill after it's passed. So can you explain again for those listeners, and it's a little bit different now because the legislature is over, but when do all of the bills that passed the legislature have to either be signed or not signed by the governor or vetoed? Right. So normally during the session, there's a five-day window. So something that was passed in early April, for example, the governor had only five days to act on that bill, whether he he signs it or vetoes it. And as Tabitha mentioned, a pocket pass is basically the governor not acting on that bill within that time. It just automatically passes into law without his signature. And so now with the end of session, anything that is transmitted in the the final five days of session, I believe, it starts this 10-day clock where 10 days after adjournment under the state constitution, that's the amount of time that the governor has to sign or veto a bill. So Friday, June 16th is basically the the ultimate sign or veto deadline at this point. So a lot of things are still up in the air, but what do you guys see moving forward, how you're feeling and what's kind of going on there in the legislature? I think that looking forward, when we're talking about the A's deal and we're looking forward on this specifically, I think what we need to consider is a couple of things. One is the initial presentation of the stadium bill did not have strong teeth to their what's called a community benefits agreement. That's essentially saying if I as a team am coming into Las Vegas, here is what I will do for the community surrounding me. Sort of what lawmakers were complaining about is saying there weren't there wasn't specific requirements. There weren't penalties if the A's didn't follow through on some of these agreements. And some of that stems back from that Raiders deal that happened where the Raiders did have a community benefits agreement, but there have been some complaints that they haven't been following through on that. So that's, I think, point number one is lawmakers really want some more teeth to that. I think the second thing is, is it is going to take an amendment that meets their expectations to get lawmakers who were a no or on the fence to a yes. And if they can get it to a yes, then I think it has to go over to the next House and pass out of the Assembly and eventually get signed by the governor. And so that's what we're waiting on is kind of the amendments to drop, the reception to those amendments, what's happening there. On the other front, which is these bill signings that we're talking about, we're kind of waiting, like Sean was saying, for that 10-day window. Once that 10-day window narrows, we are tracking already vetoes. We're tracking bill signings. And so it'll be kind of seeing what actually makes it through, what is in law, and how will that go forward. All right. Well, we're going to have a whole episode talking about the A's deal and all that whenever this special session ends and who knows when that'll be. And we're also going to have kind of a a full legislative retrospective at some point, again, whenever all of the legislative stuff ends, including the deadline for the governor to veto bills. But that will be in the future. That's a future show where we all get to talk more. But as for now, thank you guys so much for talking with me on the podcast. All right. Well, leaving the legislature and coming up here to Reno, we have two brand new members of the indie team. Noelle Sims, you are a new intern. And Amy Alonzo, you are our new environmental reporter coming to us from the RGJ, the Reno Gazette Journal. So both of you, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm pretty fresh to the indie team as well, and I'm excited to be working with you guys. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're doing here with us at the indie? 
Yeah, I am going to be taking over for Daniel covering outdoor and environmental issues, which is the same beat that I had for the Reno Gazette Journal, although the Indy has a much larger coverage area, which is a big change for me. I've been in journalism for a long time across the country and up and down the West Coast. So I'm very excited to be here. Can I ask what drew you to liking to cover environmental issues instead of other things? Oh, I am a huge outdoor person. I really struggle actually being inside. The rainy weather recently has been very conducive for me for working because on a nice day, I'm just very twitchy. But I spend most of my summer in the Sierra climbing, backpacking. I'm a huge trail runner. So I love learning about the places that I spend most of my time. Covering environmental issues is just kind of an extension of things I'm naturally interested in. And Noel. Can you inform us a little bit about your background? Yeah, so I'm an intern this summer. I just finished my junior year of college. I worked on a political magazine, so that was pretty cool. Last summer, I interned in Mississippi with Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting, which is now part of Mississippi today. They are doing the Lord's work because that is a crazy place. I've also written for the local paper at New Haven, where I go to school, which is called the New Haven Independent. So I'm sure at some point I will call the Nevada Independent, the New Haven Independent, and vice versa. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. I'm sort of on general assignment. Well, to start off, let's talk about some of that coverage. Noelle, we'll start with you. You have been attending some Washoe County Commission meetings. And what was this recent story that you wrote that came out on Friday? Yeah, I have been going to some of those meetings. This was actually the first one I went to in person. And it was actually a meeting of the Washoe County Audit Committee, and they were discussing a report they just got back from a third-party auditor that they hired to basically take a look at how Washoe County runs elections, because during the 2022 general, there were a ton of issues with not getting ballots out to people in the far areas of the county up by the Oregon border and some other like misprint issues. Basically, the audit called for a complete overhaul of the whole Registrar Voters Office, which is the office that runs the elections. So a lot of citizens showed up to give public comment on that, which is sort of why I wanted to go. I figured that might be the case. It was a lot of Washoe County GOP members and members of similar organizations and also just some citizens there to, one, criticize Washoe County elections sort of agreeing with everything in the report, but then disagreeing with the group that conducted the audit and some of the recommendations they had for updating technology and for advocating for more hand counting. And it was only two hours, which is great because recently there have been some nine plus hour Washoe County Commission meetings. So I was grateful to be out of there in about two hours. And Amy, I know you recently wrote a story for the Indy about the Bureau of Land Management. If you could speak to us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So Nevada is overwhelmingly public land managed by the Bureau of Land Management. And the BLM is proposing what they're calling a public land rule, which would elevate conservation to the same level as solar energy development, grazing, mining. What does it mean to manage land in a different way? What is the import of that, I guess? It depends who you ask, and that's what makes it so tricky. Some conservation groups have said, hey, this is really great because this puts in writing, like we are valuing conservation of this parcel of land as much as we are the ability to graze on it, to develop it for solar. This other conservation group I talked to said, no, 
we disagree with that. You are then saying this land is good for grazing and this land is good for conservation and this land is good for solar without saying that there can kind of be a cross use and that conservation should happen across all land. And I thought that was a really interesting viewpoint. A lot of the ranchers I spoke with were actually really in support of conservation, have made the argument that you can't have good grazing without having some best practices of conservation in place. Their worry seems to be really what the red tape is going to mean for them. I talked to people who had applied to the BLM for very simple, you know, permits for things that they would wait 16 months, five years, still haven't had an answer on. They're wondering when you bring conservation into the mix as like a formal designation, what that's going to mean for them just trying to operate their business. So I think it'll be really interesting to watch how it plays out in Nevada. Well, thank you, Amy and Noel. I'm excited to be working with you and to see what you come up with next. All right. Well, me and Joey are sitting here with our reporter, Gabby. And I know last time we talked a little bit about the debt limit crisis that was kind of going on in D.C. But before we get to that fun stuff, how's the weather in D.C.? You know, guys, I had a very Western experience where we had a wildfire in eastern Canada. So there was a bunch of smoke down here. And I have much sympathy for what you guys go through in the summers because I felt like my throat was sore. I was kind of like coughing and sneezing. The D.C. press corps was very unwell. Like most of us have never experienced this before. But Congressman Amade told me kind of to toughen up. So (laughs) (laughs) so I I took his advice and stopped complaining about it. Well, funny thing is we're actually experiencing what I would consider an East Coast thing, which is that like every day, at least here in Reno, every day at like 3 p.m. it just starts raining and then it like ends by like 7 or 8. And it just feels like it's like kind of an everyday thing. It's a very interesting. I feel like I've. That is kind of East Coasty. Yeah, we definitely have those, especially like in the spring when it just kind of rains every day and you just plan your day around it. (laughs) We've we've swapped weather. (laughs) Right. Been a little dreary. I have seen the wildfires in the news, though. That's pretty intense. It was really, yeah, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Well, can you talk to us a little bit about what happened with the debt limit? I know that kind of got resolved. Yeah. So last time we talked, I think we were talking about what would happen if there was a default. And luckily that didn't happen. Basically, the various negotiating parties, which was uh, on the Republican side, it was people representing Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House. And on the Democratic side, it was people representing the president, worked out a deal that basically extended the debt limit into 2025 so that Biden doesn't ever have to deal with this again in this term and curb spending at 2023 levels. So no growth in spending in exchange for the raising of the debt limit with a few other things tucked in there. Some new work requirements for food assistance, for example, permitting of a project in Virginia. And all six members of the delegation supported it. They were one of the only states where everyone supported it and one of the largest states where they got the whole delegation, which I think represents a sort of an interesting deal because I think a lot of times in Washington, the, the loudest people are the people on the extremes. But this was a case where it really was the middle, sort of the moderates in both parties banding together to get this deal passed. And there was some complaints both among progressives and then especially among the big fiscal conservatives that it wasn't enough cuts. But for the Nevada delegation, it was good enough. And they got it passed in both chambers with barely any time to spare. And we avoided default. Yeah, it seems like we have like a, you know, kind of a a, a delegation that likes to try and work, you know, across the aisle, you know, generally speaking with all all of our members, both in the Senate and the House. Yeah, particularly in the Senate, I think both Cortez Masto and Rosen really like to tout. And then in the House, Susie Lee in particular really like to tout their sort of bipartisan accolades and their willingness to work across the aisle. And I think because there's a lot of 
moderates relative to the rest of the party in the delegation. They were very willing to, you know, accept whatever deal was going to be on the table, potentially with the exception of Stephen Horsford, who did vote for the deal, but was frustrated that the Democrats even negotiated at all. But for all of them, they were like, well, the risks of default are much worse than having to swallow for the Democrats some of these some of these spending caps. And to speak further on the delegation, what is the future kind of moving forward? Yeah. So the debt limit is definitely, you know, the biggest vote that anyone in Congress has taken this year. But if you thought it was going to be sort of a boring rest of the year, as I briefly did, it's not. Um, So now that they have these spending caps in place, they have to move all 12 of the different appropriations bills. So there's 12 bills for each of the sort of various areas of government. You know, there's one for military, there's one for veterans, there's one for the environment, what have you. And they have to move them all through Congress by September 30th. Otherwise, there'll be a shutdown and it triggers an automatic 1% spending cut. So we have two members on appropriations in the House. Both Congressman Amadei and Congresswoman Lee are on appropriations. And Amadei is a cardinal of the smallest subcommittee legislative branch. So they'll be very involved in the crafting of those bills. There's already been drama there with some of the far-right Republicans already trying to undo the deal that McCarthy and Biden made and trying to bring those spending levels even lower, which, of course, the Senate Democrats are not going to like. So we'll see what happens there. And because Amade's bill is one of the first to move, that'll be a bit of a test to see how much he's willing to give in to the far right versus stay on the speaker's track. And then there's a few other bills that need to be done by September 30th. One of the big ones is the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration reauthorization. So every five years, they need to do a new authorization for anything to do with aviation, you know, air traffic control and funding for airports. There's been a lot of near collisions and near misses with planes recently, so they need to work on that. And so in the House, Dina Titus is on the committee that deals with that. And in the Senate, Jackie Rosen is on that committee. So they'll both be involved in marking up those bills, which is happening this week, and trying to get them through to ensure that we don't have some sort of stoppage related to planes. And then the other big one is the farm bill. So none of the delegation is on the Agriculture Committee in either chamber, but they're all interested in the farm bill because Nevada has so many ranchers and people who are invested in agriculture in various ways. So that'll be authorization both for subsidies and funds for agriculture, as well as food assistance, both fall under agriculture. And that also needs to be done by September 30th. So those are the the things that are on my mind and I'm sure on the delegation's mind as we move past the debt limit and into some spending and reauthorization fights. Moving forward, too, we also have coming up a little bit sooner is the Basque Fry, which is a Nevada-specific event that kind of revolves around the Republican Party. Can you explain what this is and, you know, what, what to expect from it? Yeah, so the Basque Fry is an event that Adam Laxalt has held for, I think, eight straight years, former attorney general and former Senate candidate and gubernatorial candidate, where he brings Republicans in the state and from out of the state to sort of get together at the celebration of Basque culture, which there's a, a thriving Basque community in northern Nevada, as well as to, I think, get excitement for various conservative priorities, various Republican politicians in the state. And I think it's been used as an opportunity in the past for presidential hopefuls to introduce themselves to a Nevada audience, given that Nevada is an early state in the nominating calendar. So it's this weekend, and the headliner is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. Him and Laxalt go way back. They were roommates in Naval Justice School together when they were both becoming Navy Jags. So he'll be headlining. I'm sure he'll share sort of why Nevadans should be interested in him as opposed to Trump, who has, you know, garnered more support from what I hear from some of the county party chairs. And then I think what we've seen in some of the polls we've conducted. And so I think he'll make his pitch to Nevadans about why he's the better candidate moving into the February primary. 
Well, speaking of Trump and to kind of wrap up this segment with you, Gabby, can you speak to us a bit about the indictment that I've been reading so much about in national news? Yeah. So this is the second indictment now of former President Trump. It's the first federal indictment ever for a former president. So it's a big deal for sure. And it's going to be a question, I think, to all Republicans moving forward about are any of these you know, federal crimes that he's facing? And this one is specifically is related to his handling of classified documents that he took with him after his presidency. Is there anything in the sort of legal realm that would be enough for his many supporters in Congress and in the states to potentially back another candidate? So I think for everything that comes up, there's another indictment that people are expecting related to election fraud or to January 6th that could be coming. And for everyone, I'm going to keep asking Congressman Amadei what he thinks. So far, he thinks that it's highly suspicious. He pointed to the fact that both President Biden, and he didn't mention this, but Vice President Pence were both found to have classified materials related to their both of their times as vice presidents. I think the main difference is the quantity. Trump had way more. And then also cooperation. I think both Biden and Pence thus far have cooperated with the investigations and we haven't seen anything, any indictments or news come out for either of them. But for Trump, obviously, now we've seen an indictment. But Congressman Amadei said, quote, our country has multiple significant fundamental issues to deal with presently. This continuing obsession of the political ends justify any means, regardless of the harm to our republic, is a sad commentary on our current state. So I think for now, he's calling this what a lot of Republicans are calling it, which is a weaponization of the federal government. And I think he'd rather talk about other things. All right. Well, thanks, Gabby, for your time. And we'll be looking out into the future and all these issues. Thanks for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Tabitha Mueller, Jacob Solis, Sean Galanka, Amy Alonzo, Noelle Sims, and Gabby Bierenbaum for being on the show today. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, along with Alex Kuro, and we had additional help from Michelle Rendells. You can also support the show by leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Story Blocks, June Pearson, Tom Fox, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. And we'll talk to you next week. Is it the Bureau of... I don't know why I can't say that right now. You need to leave that part in. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the blooper. We always have a blooper at the end. <laughs> I have no idea that wouldn't come out of my mouth.